You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is your host and editor, Michael Litchens, here today with author Kevin Vo. Some of you might be familiar with a couple of his articles on Catholic Exchange or with his many books that cover everything from fitness to spirituality to Thomas Aquinas. And he has a new book out right now, The Seven Deadly Sins. If any of you peeked in last week, you would have seen a very fine review of The Seven Deadly Sins on CatholicExchange.com. And we're happy to welcome him here to talk about his book, his work, and how you can conquer sin through the help of Thomas Aquinas. So, Kevin, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Now, to start us out a little bit, can you tell us a little about The Seven Deadly Sins and what your new book's about? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, you know, I've written several Catholic books, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. When I was writing one years ago, a biography of St. Albert the Great, who was one of Thomas Aquinas' teacher, I came across a line in there talking about Albert. And it said for almost any author, you're going to find the seed of all their future books in their first book. And I thought about that and thought, man, that really nailed it on the head for me. I've done about 10 or so Catholic books now, and all of them did in one way or another flow from that first. And my first Catholic book was called Memorize the Faith. And there was a quick little chapter in there about memorizing the seven deadly sins. So when, oh, about nine years later, Sophia Institute Press asked me to do a whole book on the seven deadly sins. I mean, that was right up my alley. I already have a taste of it. And I was really looking forward to really digging in. And finding out the history, you know, where did this idea of seven deadly sins come from? And then more importantly, you know, what have we learned in our great Catholic heritage about how to conquer them? Mm-hmm. And in this book, uh, you cover the seven deadly sins. Is there any way that this book is very different from anyone who, say, wanted to look up an encyclopedia article on the seven deadly sins? Do you also talk about how to help coping with them? Yes, exactly. Basically, the first half of the book is more of a detailed history on where did this idea come from, okay. starting in scriptures, Going through Eastern Desert Fathers, uh, Catholic Fathers of the Latin West, we move on to Pope St. Gregory the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas himself. Then the second half of the book, I uh, call the Battle Plan section. And that's where we focus in, zoom in on one sin at a time. And what did some of these great, you know, Catholic figures in our heritage of saints, what have they taught us about these sins? You know, how do we mm-hmm. understand them in such depth that we can really examine our conscience? And then what can we do about them to try to conquer them in our own lives? This is a question I get asked this a lot, and I really never have a clear answer. I grew up in a Protestant home, and people always ask me, well, where does this idea of the seven deadly sins come from? Where's that in the Bible is always the question we get. But where does this idea come from? You know, that's a very good question. Okay, where is that in the Bible? Well, the seven deadly sins, as the list that we have today, are no, you know, are nowhere together in the Bible in one specific list like that. Mm-hmm. But each of these seven, you know, what came to be called deadly sins, they're in the Bible by themselves or another combination hundreds of times. I even do a little count from a concordance in the first chapter to show you how often. So they're definitely very, very biblical. But where the list came from, that comes, you know, in our Catholic heritage. Again, with those Eastern Greek speaking fathers, many of them the monks in the deserts. In the early centuries of Christianity, they started, you know, grappling with sin, trying to find ways to, to conquer them, and then pulled the, together this list. It really starts with uh, a desert father named Evagrius that had a list of what he called eight assailing thoughts, or these, these thoughts, these images, these ideas that can attack us, even if we're out in the desert by ourselves. So these are kind of precursors to sin. Other great church fathers took a hold with that developed the idea, and it was around the time of uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great in the 6th, 7th century 
that we came to have the list that we know today as the seven deadly sins. And I just have to ask to see how well you have it all memorized. What are the seven deadly sins exactly? Sure, I'll give you the, here's how they're listed in the catechism. Okay. It's their uh, pride and avarice or greed, uh, envy, anger or wrath, lust, sloth or acedia. It's another uh, word for it. It means like not caring, a spiritual mm-hmm. apathy. Uh, did I say, did I give them all that I gluttony? Gluttony. That was the one we were yeah. missing. Yeah. And a lot of, if you don't mind, I just want to look at a couple of these sins and just ask, cause I don't think we use this word, some of these words too often. For example, sloth. I think the image that some of us have might be just someone lazy, but what exactly is sloth? Oh, that's exactly right. There is a lot of confusion with that and idea of laziness. In fact, I watched, uh, you know, one of our modern television channels documentaries had a whole series on the seven daily sins years back, and one they covered was sloth. And they kind of ended by saying, if the Christian tradition is to be believed, a simple act of laziness can send you to hell. So is that all sloth really is, just being lazy? Oh my gosh, I don't know how many times a day I might be at risk of that one. No, it's really more than that. St. Thomas Aquinas said sloth is is a sadness about spiritual goods. In a sense, it's it's like a turning away from God is having an apathy there. I mean, it might show up in acts of laziness in that we're not diligent. We, we don't put the effort to, to go to Mass, to do the things we're supposed to do. But it's really more of a spiritual sin, a turning away from God, a turning towards other things instead. So it may not really be laziness. We might be so darn busy, you know, we don't have time to pray, let alone think. Mm-hmm. But that can be a form of sloth if we're getting being immersed in all these petty activities instead of giving God his rightful due. And uh, then also I think people have some confusion, so I'd love you to talk a little bit about it. But gluttony, I'll be honest, I'm an overweight person, so maybe this is a sin that people people have me in their mind when they think gluttony, but what exactly is it? <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's a good question, though, because I'm also I'm pulling a lot of these ideas you know, from St. Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. who's also known for being a very, very large and burly man. Yes. And, of course, you know, some of our great Catholic Figures have, have been big guys. G.K. Chesterton, another one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. So, so gluttony does not directly relate to your body size necessarily. You, know, you can be a person who has a tendency to be very large and husky and not necessarily have an inordinate desire for food. You can also be a person who's thin and fit as a fiddle. And if you're obsessed with food in one way or another, you, you can be a glutton. So one thing to keep in mind, you know, gluttony is really uh, an inordinate or inappropriate absorption with food. It's not necessarily just eating too much. There can be a gluttony in the form of being uh, being too picky, you know, not showing gratitude for what you're served, but expecting things just served just the way you want it, or only wanting fine and fancy foods. There's also a gluttony of eating too hastily, you know, wolfing down your food or not having good table manners, uh, not being able to hold on to fats, eating too often. So there's many different ways gluttony is expressed. And it's not always just just skin deep that you can see just by looking at a person's body type. Okay, so in a many weird ways, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but we can also find gluttony, say, in foodie culture, people who are obsessed with finding the most amazing and the most expensive and also the most unique foods in a way, couldn't yeah. we? Yes, it really could. You know, if they're keeping that, if that's their hobby, if the rest of their life is, is in balance, if they're paying due mm-hmm. honor to God, it's not necessarily gluttony. But yes, the risk is there. If that becomes an all-consuming passion to where you're setting aside more important things, then yes, the, the foodie can be uh, suffering from gluttony. And then, of course, there's the there's a question of uh, anger. And that's another sin I think a lot of people are not sure when it's anger is sinful and when it becomes a deadly sin or when it's just a passion. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. You know, yeah, right. Anger is a good one because, you know, it's also like a natural reaction. And when I talk about the ways to address anger, you know, I borrow from, of course, the great saints, 
also from ancient Stoic philosophers and from modern psychotherapy, cognitive therapy, they call it, which mm -hmm. borrowed a lot from those Stoics. And, and the Stoics were really in their main focus was keeping yourself calm and under control. And some of them always said that you should never get angry because you've lost control when you're angry. Mm -hmm. But people like Thomas Aquinas following Aristotle said, you know, there are certain times when anger is appropriate. There's a righteous anger, maybe especially when there's an injustice going on. It may not affect us. It may affect others. So there can be times when we can have angry feelings. But if anger is going to become a sin, then we're going to let it you know, run beyond its bounds. We're not going to try to rein it in. You know, we're not going to delay before we have an angry thought. We're just going to act, you know, or we're not going to bear a grudge. Uh, so there's lots of different ways anger can be expressed. But the natural emotion of anger in response to a pain or a slight, that, that's not necessarily a sinful thing. It's, it's what do you do with it after that? Okay, so in a lot of ways, I'm noticing a little pattern here. Maybe you could tell us a little bit. There seems to be a common theme of taking the passions and making sure you have control over them so that they don't turn deadly. Am I correct in that? That's right, because, you know, most of the deadly sins, they come from kind of a mistaken search for what, what looks good to us. You know, that they're, they're mm -hmm. pleasurable or there's some positive there. But when we look down deep, we're realizing it's, they're going to hurt us in the long run. They're false goods. So for, for basically all the deadly sins, one of our goals is to kind of try to catch them early on, realizing when they're affecting us, their first, the first great impulse there, and then kind of try to nip them in the bud. You know, get them while they're just forming. So that is a matter of trying to bring our reason in control. So, yeah, we're passionate beings. We don't want to get rid of all of our emotional reactions. And some of them are very good and some of them bring us joy. But we want to do want to keep it in check when it goes beyond reason, you know, when it goes beyond the, the tenets of our faith, that, you know, Christian uh, charity. And then I no also noticed on your book that it says it's a Thomistic guide to vanquishing sin and vice. Why is Thomas Aquinas the ideal model for learning how to cope with the deadly sins and learning how to control ourselves with those? Okay, yeah, and that's an excellent question. And part of the reason Thomas is such a great source is that he never tried to, to you know, write the book or start from the beginning himself. Mm -hmm. Whenever he addressed a topic, he's going to see what the great minds before him have had to say about it. He's going to study the scripture. He's going to study the previous church fathers and doctors of the church and writings of the saints and the councils. In fact, one of our popes said that Thomas so respected the church fathers and theologians that came before him that in a way he in inherited the intellect of all of them. So, you know, when you're reading St. Thomas Aquinas, you're not just getting, here are the ideas of St. Thomas Aquinas. You're getting, here are the ideas of the 1,300 years of the church that came before him mm -hmm. and what he has thoughtfully made of that, you know, carefully weighing, you know, what was written by the, the, the various fathers and, you know, weighing them and pulling out. The, the richness of the truth that's there. So, so when you're reading Thomas, you're really almost like reading an encapsulation of all the great thought that came before him. And so many of these ideas are timeless that they're still as valid today as they were in the 13th century. And then I think a lot of folks would wonder what Thomas understands some of the things we're dealing with today. Like I know lust is the great deadly sin. And if you have connection to the internet, you can see how deadly that sin is. I don't need to go into details about that. Right. Uh, what can Thomas say about that, those of us who are struggling with the modern technologies and things like that, that really bring these new sins to my lap? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, you know, lust, of course, is a, is a major one with, with the Internet. Yes. Also, he talked about an even kind of like a, a more basic sin. He talked about the sin of what was called curiosity mm. versus the virtue of studiousness. You know, so there's in a sense that being curious is good. You know, we want to have a desire to know things. But there is that curiosity that that, that you want to... You spend too much time learning trivial things. Yes. And that's another, you know, potential pitfall of the Internet. 
we get to you know we can get to where we're just scanning and always looking for that next link, that next article, just you know skipping from one thing to the next, and not really going deep into anything. So that's a risk there. Even if we can stay away from the sites that lead to the sin of lust, there's this idea of this curiosity that can, in a way, you know, lead us away from God, lead us away from more important things. So, so for there, you know, Thomas would, you know, encourage us to try to focus on the things that matter the most. Also, in terms of lust, he gives one specific recommendation that, that I think is, is really valuable. He said that, you know, one way to combat lust is, he called it, to avoid focusing on singulars. You know, so what does he mean by that? You know, avoid, avoid focusing on particular stimuli we can see with our senses. So when you just see some image, you know, of a beautiful body, boom, here goes this whole possible trigger that's going to lead us to lustful thoughts and, and possibly behaviors. But Thomas says, don't think of this only as a singular. Don't think of this only as a person's body. Think of this as a person's body. This is a person with a soul. So think at the higher level there. This is not just a beautiful body. What you're seeing is someone's daughter. What you're seeing is maybe someone's speech or spouse. You're seeing uh, someone's mother, perhaps. So to think at these higher levels beyond just the flesh and bones that really sees us for who we are as people and in the different roles that, that we have in our lives now and, and in the past and later. And it's funny you mentioned curiosity. As somebody who works on the Internet, I've often said that curiosity is my chief sin, and I'm well aware of that. So <laughs> that's one that most people don't hear about too often, but I do know that one. And then uh, some other sin I think uh, some of us are familiar with is on the Internet. What's a great mystic way to deal with anger? Okay, to, to deal with anger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and here, uh, you know, remember, okay, I think for St. Thomas, he's saying, you know, if we're going to be angry, we want to be angry, you know, at the right person for the right reasons, you know, and with the right goal in mind. If we're going to act out and, and speak out against someone, we're going to want to do that with a goal not to damage them, but to set some wrong and make it make it right. We're going to do it with charity. We're going to give people the benefit of a doubt if we don't know their true motivations. Yes. So there's there's a, a lot going there. Uh, Thomas also pulled from those Stoic philosophers that, that have contributed to modern psychotherapy. And one of the techniques they recommend, you know, when something makes you angry, well, to realize what that person did didn't directly make you angry. It was your interpretation, what you told yourself about what they did that caused that. So like an example I give, let's say you're on the bus and a very large man walks by and steps on your foot and crunches your toes and walks on by without a word. You know, you might be seething in anger, right? But then what if you look up past there and you see that, oh, he had a white cane and he's got some dark glasses. Now, that was a blind guy that did that. So maybe now, though, my foot still hurts. I'm really not so angry. You know, so it's showing that so much of our reaction is really how we interpret what happened, how we interpret our pain. So almost in any circumstance, let's say even that, let's say that guy really did try to crunch your toes, you know, we don't have to think, you know, what a dastardly person. We can think, well, what a shame, you know, too bad that a person like a grown man acts that way. Well, we can pray for him. You know, so, so, so much of anger is slowing down, rethinking it, letting reason take over once that cooling process has happened. Very good. And how about folks who have, uh, I know this is something I think we all struggle with, especially in youth, but people who are constantly angry or just known as an angry person, what are some good steps to start conquering that sin? Yeah, for, for just the angry person, that, that is another type, the type of yes. the person who maybe doesn't, doesn't want to give it up. They're going to bear a grudge. Mm-hmm. Maybe even if someone says, you know, tries to make up, they're just not going to do that. What we need to really keep in mind, you know, for Christians, Catholics, how contrary that is to charity. Mm-hmm. So recognize that as sinful behavior, if we're purposely bearing a grudge. Uh, an, another technique that the Stoics talk about is like preparing yourself for the fact that people are going to do things that might anger you 
Marcus Aurelius said, when you get up in the day, tell yourself, I'm going to come across uh, the busybody. I'm going to come across the rude person, you know, and so on. So that's going to happen. But train yourself to forgive them in, the, in advance because, of course, that's what Jesus himself taught us in the Lord's Prayer. You know, forgive us our trespasses as though we forgive those who trespass against us. So if we can start our day actually saying that prayer and thinking about the words, we're going to set ourselves up to forgive and not to bear grudges. That actually reminds me of a story when I was confessing the sin of anger in the confessional and all of a sudden the priest just piped up, are you Irish by chance? And I had to say, yeah, yes, on my mom's side. And that created a whole fun conversation about anger and how to deal with it day to day. That's good. As, as a guy with who's Irish on his mom's side, I'm with you. There, <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> the old grudges. And while we're talking about this, uh, we're going through some of the sins and what we can do to really be mindful of them. But overall, it sounds like the more I'm talking with you and the more I've read through your book, that a lot of the way to defeat sins is to have some mindfulness or have some idea of your own passions and to watch over that. Is there a way to cultivate that in prayer or practice at all? Uh, yes. Actually, there, there's a, a kind of a seven-step method that I try to incorporate mm. for all the sins in the last chapter. I'll go through those real quickly. I'll Please. Tell them. Number one, I call an examination of conscience. Examination of conscience. You know, we all know about that. But there's a particular way that can be helped if we look at the different varieties of sins, like the different ways the fin- sins can manifest themselves. Like we talked about gluttony. It's not necessarily only eating too much. It can be eating in too picky a manner, mm-hmm. eating too hastily, you know, eating too often, uh, and so on. Also, what some of these great saints call the daughters of the deadly sins, the different kind of sins that tend to flow from uh, from these sins. So, like, we're wondering if we're vainglorious. Would I go around boasting? Am I willing to let other people win a point? You know, we can think through these particular things. So, examination of conscience, number one. Number two, I have embracing the sacraments. And the most direct one there is reconciliation or confession. You know, so once we've examined our conscience, we're going to go to the sacrament of reconciliation and get those sins conquered for the time. So to put it in like the battle plan model, that examination of conscience is like, you know, knowing your enemy or finding your enemy, laying out your plan and then embracing the sacrament reconciliation. That's like, you know, that's the attack. That's when you're going to conquer them. Or if you want to put it in a medical model, Examining the conscious is like doing your laboratory tests or your x-rays, finding out what's in there, the pathology. Mm-hmm. Then the reconciliation, that's like the surgery, you know. You're going there, you're getting rid of that sin. But then also, you know, once that battle is won or once that, uh, you know, cancer is eradicated, you want to make sure it doesn't come back. So I'll quickly go through five other steps I give. Yeah, you know, let's say you're coming out of confession now. The next one I, I call watching the steps of our movement towards sin. And some of the great church fathers talked about different psychological steps that go on from our first uh, sense of a temptation towards sin to when it finally, you know, fully takes hold of us. So we're going to train ourselves to watch these steps. The fourth is practicing prayer. And, you know, for, for each kind of sin, there's, a, there's a, a prayer in there, a prayer we already know, you know, that can work against it. Just one quick example, for example, for vainglory, you try to draw attention to yourself. When we say the glory be, you know, to the Father, you know, the glory be gives the glory where it belongs, to God mm-hmm. instead. So for all these sins, there are different particular prayers we can pray really uh, thoughtfully to help conquer those sins. The fifth I call cultivating virtue. You know, thank God for every deadly sin out there. There's a variety of virtues that we can use to battle them. A quick example, sloth. You know, we're not really giving God his due. We're, we're showing some apathy. How about developing the virtue of gratitude? Mm-hmm. Will you realize and wake up to all the good things God has given you? You know, every good thing that you have comes from God. 
Yes. So don't say, hey, God, what have you done for me lately? You know, you realize every good thing you have or will have comes from God. So for all these sins, there's really a, a bevy of virtues out there we can use to conquer them. Number six, I call uh, immersion in the world of the spirit. This can be, you know, a, a, just a great appreciation for the communion of saints, all the wonderful heritage we have in the Catholic Church, focusing on the true and, the, you know, the good and the beautiful. So things like that. Number seven is imitation of Christ. The last step is trying to live like Christ himself did. And one thing I do in the book here, uh, Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen once gave a series of lectures during an, um, Lent where he talked about what are called the Christ's seven last words on the cross, mm. seven last phrases while he's dying on the cross. And he showed how each one of these combats one of the seven deadly sins. So we take a look at that in the chapters. And we also just keep in mind, you know, Christ conquered all sin. If we're going to conquer it, we're going to conquer it through him. And we're also going to keep in mind, you know, what a wonderful model Christ himself is for us as we try to conquer these sins. Great seven steps. Uh, I'm especially curious about this. I think it's step five, cultivating a virtue. Yes. Can you tell us a little more what that might look like in combating sins, such as you mentioned vainglory, I believe. Uh, what about sure. uh, if we're combating, say, lust or gluttony when we're trying to cultivate a virtue? Yes. Okay. For, for lust uh, and gluttony, uh, Thomas actually writes about these sins in the context of virtues. And the one overarching, what they call the cardinal virtues, one of the big four moral virtues, mm -hmm. which is temperance or self-control, justice, prudence, or a practical wisdom, and, and fortitude or courage. He says that gluttony and lust are both countered by, by the virtue of temperance, which is, which is a self-control where we learn to rein in our passionate desires. And actually, many of the church fathers noted a link between gluttony and lust because they're both carnal or natural sins that yes. relate uh, to the body there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to develop this virtue of temperance or a self-control, but especially with lust. Most of the church fathers say right from the beginning recognize you're not going to conquer that on your own. You're not going to conquer that with natural virtue. You need the help and grace of God. So that's why you also need the virtue of humility there. Uh, St. John Climacus said that trying to conquer lust with temperance alone, the natural virtue of temperance, is like you know trying to swim the ocean with one arm tied behind your back. To free that other arm, you're going to pull in humility, which opens you to God's graces and God's help. And in a way, I think part two of your whole book is actually cultivating a whole battle plan to get rid of the deadly sins. Besides Thomas Aquinas, were there any other saints or church fathers you looked to to cultivate that plan? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, most of the church fathers who were in the first part of the book, Evagrius of Pontus, St. John Cassian, uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great, St. John Climacus. Yeah, they, I pull from all of them with their various ideas how to, to conquer the virtues. And also saints who came after St. Thomas Aquinas. For example, mm -hmm. on Vainglory, I remember St. Francis de Sales and his wonderful introduction to the devout life. You know, he has some great quotes that are really whoppers against vainglory. Uh, so that's in there. Venerable Louis of Granada had some wonderful insights, like contrary to envy, if I recall. You know, so they're in there. So yeah, just a peppering of, of wonderful strategies that have also come from a variety of saints. And it sounds like uh, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius earlier in this podcast. I just want to say this is the first time I think a Stoic philosopher has ever been mentioned on my podcast. So good work. <laughs> well, thanks. I have to admit, I have my next book coming out is about the Stoics and how they were accepted and how they were, what the early Christians thought about them and how that had gone down throughout the centuries. So the Stoics are partly on my mind. I found they're, they're very kindred spirit. They're, they, uh, they have a lot of good knowledge here that came from natural reason that was then perfected, you know, in the Christian message. Okay, great. That was actually my next question. Now, what, 
influence that the Stoics have on uh, early Christian thought and also medieval Christian thought. Yeah, you know, some of the some of our most profound uh, early church fathers were also uh, very learned philosophers, mm-hmm. and they knew there was a lot of good wisdom that had come from Greece and Rome. So the one great thing about the Catholic Church and and Thomas Aquinas himself, but, but all the Catholic churches, you know, we accept truth wherever it is. And there are seeds of truth, you know, in some of the natural philosophy there. So, so we cultivate that. And the Stoics taught a lot about keeping your passions in line with reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't know Christ, but their natural reason led them to a concept of God. And they said, really, ultimately living the good life is when what you do, you're living in accordance to the will of God. You know, they didn't have the direct revelation to tell us as crystal clear as, as we get it what that will is. But just much natural wisdom there in the Stoics. The early church fathers were well aware of them. And then even in the days of uh, St. Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, the, or some of the early great uh, Dominican founders were well aware of these nuggets of wisdom in the Stoics. And they were particularly likely to pull from Seneca because he wrote in Latin. All makes sense. Great. And we're wrapping up the podcast now. Where can people learn more about you and this book if they wanted to find out? Okay, yeah. My own website is drvost.com, just D-R-V-O-S-T.com. And my publisher for this book, The Seven Deadly Sins, and for so many others, is Sophia Institute Press. Excellent. We'll put a link there uh, to drvost.com up on the show notes when we publish this podcast. So all of you listening, please feel free to go there. We'll also have links to Kevin's many articles all around. And with that, I just want to say thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure having you here, learning about the seven deadly sins and also what we can do to combat them. If folks want to pick this book up, it is available on Sophia Institute Press, and we'll put a link there as well. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Oh, mine too. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, and God bless you all. God love you. Have a wonderful week.